and we're on. All right. Welcome everyone to Giant Steps, the new podcast with Doug Van Dorn. And with me is my awesome producer and host, co-host Rudy Landa. And you know, Rudy, today we're going to bring in one of my good buds, uh, Brian Gadawa. And we're going to uh, have some fun with this one, I think. Absolutely, man. Excited to do it. Let's bring him in right now. Get him in. Brian. Hey, guys. What's going on, Brian? Brian. Welcome. Good to be here. Excited for this, man. Like, this is a brand new podcast. So you're one of the, you're like our second guest. Cool. I, yeah. you know, there's a lot of times <laughs> where I've been the first guest on show. It's like people like to practice on me, you know, <laughs> you know, practice on the, you know, the questionable ones. And so we'll have it right when we get the good guests. All right. Well, for those who don't know Brian, a uh, little bit of introduction here. You know, Brian and I have been on a couple of different podcasts together. We did the Pure Normal podcast when uh, Dr. Heiser was alive and, and Natalie, and unfortunately, both of them have passed away. So that's a that's a dead podcast, but we've also been doing um, Iron and Myth now for, I don't know, 20, 20 months or something like that. So that's been going pretty good. Enjoying that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good Brian stuff. Brian is a Hollywood producer, um, writer, writer, prolific. Producer. Pro, uh, well, you produce scripts. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I say that because I have contempt for Hollywood producers. <laughs> <laughs> he's a scriptwriter. He's a he's an author. Um, lived out in L.A. for for quite a while. How long did you live out there, Brian? Oh, almost thirty years. Thirty years. Before that, you were in the mid. You're a Midwest boy, and then you decided you really, really wanted to move to Colorado. And then you saw our politics and said, "I don't think so." So now you're down <laughs> in Texas. That is literally what happened. <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> yeah. Yep. When we if were in I LA, did... and we're like, "We got to get the heck out of here. It's going down the tube. The riots were down our street." And I'm like. And so we've set out, you know, I want to want to be in a state that's not uh, look, I, I realize that, you know, there are sinners and bad people everywhere. So you're not going to escape bad people. And I want to bring the gospel to everybody. So it's not that it's more about having a, a, a safer environment where your life isn't in danger or your or the governance of the state is not going to. Uh, is not out to destroy you literally as the middle class person, you know, whether it's with taxes, but also laws that benefit criminals and, and criminalize um, innocence, you know, law, law, (laughs) innocent law keepers like myself, they would, they would, um, you know, penalize me instead. So we started looking around, you know, and, and uh, you know, it was like uh, Texas, Colorado, Tennessee, Florida. And we, you know, slowly you know canceled each one out but colorado was definitely it was it was already going too purple too far purple and denver was almost like la now the truth is is houston and austin are are like little la's so that's that's the fact so um but yes then we ended up uh, choosing dallas just because it's it's the least far down the line in terms of uh uh destruction (laughs) you know absolutely We've got all these people in our church who just constantly want to move away from Colorado. And I would be doing the same thing, but I tell them, this is my island. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm yes. Not, I'm not leaving until they like 
do well, drink for me. So that's what, so I decided when, when we came to Texas, I'm like, this is going to be my Alamo. I'll go down fighting here. Uh, I, I wasn't able to fight in LA. I mean, yeah. you have no voice, you have no authority, no power, no influence. Your vote doesn't mean anything if you are a conservative or a Christian and worse if you're both. And, um, and so at least in Texas, I can do things. And in fact, that as soon as we got here, um, <laughs> I saw wokeness coming into my church and, uh, through critical race theory and I jumped on it and, um, we got it out. Really? So, praise God. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome to hear, man. I had no idea. Yeah. It's creeping in everywhere. There's, there's really yeah. no, uh, it's, you know, it's up to people to do something. <laughs> you know, Brian, you've written so many books. Uh, Hollywood Worldviews is, is the book I first heard you about you from. Um, you were on the White Horse Inn, I don't know, it's probably 20 years ago or something like that. And talking about this book, and I'm like, wow, you got a Hollywood writer who's writing about how to think Christianly about the movies, and you're on a reform podcast. And, you know, it just kind of tucked away in the back of my mind. Um, and then we ended up meeting pr really providentially as you were writing your chronicles of the Nephilim and stuff like that. So, you know, tell me a little bit about your Hollywood worldviews book, why you wrote it, what it's done for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hollywood worldviews was sort of, um, at the, in the, when I first wrote that book, it was, uh, it was almost the first of its kind, pretty much, you know, now we have, there's a lot of books written by Christians about movies and film and stuff like that. And that's all great. But at the time I was, um, as a writer in Hollywood, I was developing my own, what, what you call in philosophy an aesthetic, which means it's my philosophy of beauty. It's my, uh, theology of beauty, actually. Um, I was seeking to, to understand storytelling as a, Hollywood screenwriter, I was learning all about storytelling um, through Hollywood story gurus. And I had noticed that what the, the, the nature of story structure itself, which is oriented towards redemption, that is redemption of a protagonist or hero as they set off on a journey to vanquish an enemy or accomplish a goal. And through that journey, they learn something about themselves that's, that's wrong about the way they live or see the world. And when they, um, you know, have that revel self-revelation of their own inner flaw, they, they become redeemed, they change, and they get the, shall we say, the, the uh, inner strength in order to f vanquish the outer foe, the villain at the very end, you know, that kind of a thing. And I noticed that a lot of what they were saying was very much sounded like my Christian, like a Christian testimony, the way I had learned to, to tell my, my Christian testimony. And also a lot of the um, paradigms such as the hero's journey, you know, um, most people now have heard of Joseph Campbell. And yeah. he was, of course, a uh, relativist who believed in mythology and didn't believe in Christianity, but he talked about the hero's journey and, and how that led to, um, you know, to ultimate failure and a death and a resurrection and a return with the elixir, you know, and that journey itself also was reflective of the Christ myth. And I, I realized that storytelling is about redemption. Now, it's not necessarily Christian redemption because you can place any philosophy into the paradigm of redemption that you want. And for a, uh, 
another way of seeing um, the paradigm of redemption is as the storyline of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And that's actually a storyline. And so storytelling itself actually follows that paradigm. And so when I realized that, I, I, I saw what was the power behind storytelling that had affected me so, for so long in my life with movies and television and such. And it was a powerful uh, revelation that I wanted to share with the church, with anybody who was a religious person who wanted to appreciate movies more. Um, and in some ways at that time in the church, not so much now, but uh, at that time in the church, there was a strong dichotomy in the body of Christ. Now there still is to some degrees um, where Christians react to media, to culture, you know, particularly, you know, my, my area of expertise, which was, of course, movies and television. And they respond to with one of two, two extremes usually, which is the cultural anorexic, what I call the cultural anorexic. That's the person who says, oh, there's sex and too much sex and violence on movies. It's bad. It's all bad. And so they don't watch any of it or don't expose themselves to any of it. And the other extreme that might say, ah, it's just entertainment. What's the big deal? You know, so there's a few bad things. Or maybe it's like, I'm free in Christ, so I can, I can watch anything I want and it's not going to hurt me. And so, I, you know, I felt like there were both extremes that I wanted to help both sides to appreciate um, movies and television more. And at the same time, develop an ability to discern the good from the bad. Because the truth is, is that all art is a mixture of good and bad, just like all sermons are a mixture of good and bad, right? You know, you can have, no one's perfect. That's the bottom line. And so yep. even though you may have a lot of bad movies out there and, and it's gotten worse in Hollywood for sure, but there's still a lot of good that still comes through even to this day, I have to admit. Um, even with the wokeness that has captured Hollywood, there are still filmmakers who are getting flying in under the radar or able to, to stand up and, and get their visions accomplished that have some good, good elements to them, right? And so um, I wanted to help the body of Christ have a better appreciation. And I also believe that the more that you know and understand, it's sort of like art appreciation, right? The more, say, you go to an art appreciation for music or a painting class or something, and they teach you all the components of painting or of music and harmony and dissonance and all this, you can then become more intelligent as you listen to music or as you look at a painting. What's well, the same way with movies. It's like, if you understand the, uh, what we storytellers are doing when we're telling a story, you'll understand, you'll have more knowledge that you can appreciate it more, but you can also discern what they're doing. And if it's bad or negative, you can, it, you're not as likely to be affected by something if you can see what they're trying to do. If you don't, if you just watch a movie and let it wash over you, you're going to be led by the storytellers into their paradigm through an emotional slash experiential sort of um, uh, uh, metaphysic, you know, non-metaphysic, I'd say maybe a, 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 an epistemology, you know, you, the, the, the story draws you in, you root for the hero. And as you do so, you are opening yourself up to what the storytellers are telling you about life and how it should be lived through that hero's journey that you are identifying with. And that's sort of the basic, you know, paradigm that I was trying to communicate through the book. And yeah, because, you know, it's been, it still is a good seller after 25 years mm -hmm. because I've updated it. And also they use it in Christian schools to teach, um, uh, you know, in, in Christian film schools and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a, it was a good, it was a way for me to put down into paper what I was 
wrestling with myself as the storyteller, as the artist. And then that launched me, you know, that was right around the time when my first movie got made, To End All Wars. Well, and actually, it was shortly after that. There's so many ways that I could go with this. I mean, we could, you, we were joking around, you know, how long to be on this podcast. You're like, you give me 10 hours. We could probably do that, Brian, <laughs> if you wanted to. But, um, you know, just thinking about. Uh, changed my mind. No. <laughs> no, no, no 10 hours. Let's keep it to eight, eight seven or eight. <laughs> Supper's at five o'clock. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, just thinking about it as a, as a pastor uh, and thinking about scripture, you, you go to the arc of, of uh, creation and fall redemption and it's a completely biblical storyline, but my experience, at least until pretty recently, I think, has been that most people will read the Bible as either kind of a manual for living or something, or or as just like a theology book, a systematic theology book. And I think what you're in in drawing on this idea of creation and fall, redemption, that's something that goes all the way back to the beginning of storytelling. And for us as Christians, it goes back to the very beginning of our of our Bibles, you know, and and learning to think about the Word of God as a story um, first and foremost. How does how do you think that that fits into the way people tell stories? You know, biblical story to the way people tell stories, um, and and what it is like when when you don't know anything about story and you just read the Bible, does it wash over you, <laughs> or or do you need to understand something about storytelling even when you read the Bible? Well, that's a complex question. How dare you? <laughs> that's why I said an hour. But what I, what I, the little, the little element of it that, that I think is important to me that I want to focus on is that, is that um, the power of storytelling is in its ability to incarnate ideas and worldviews. Right. So uh, so I do believe that even if if even if you're just reading the Bible and you're just reading it as a story. In fact, I'm doing that right now. I'm going reading through the Bible, just reading through it, not studying. And I tend to study the Bible, but I'm just reading it as the story that was written. Right. And right now I'm up to Joseph. And um, I believe that, that, yeah, the power of story is so much so that even if you're not really consciously thinking of what you're learning, you are drawing from that story because of the nature of human drama incarnate in events and chronologies and what and the moral choices and consequences that occur by expo it's like modeling it it's modeling it right so when you see when you're reading about uh, the choices that a good character may make for instance you're affirmed that these good choices lead to these good consequences. When you see a bad person doing the bad consequences that lead to bad choices, you are affirmed whether you like it or not, whether you think so or not, you're being affirmed of that, that viewpoint, right? So I do believe that, which is why I'm not as concerned about, um, these days, you know, I have, uh, how should I say it? Um, I'm not as concerned about having having to explain all my stories, I tend to like to do that because I like the theology behind them and, you know, and I have no problem doing that. But sometimes I'll have people read my novels and they'll say, you know, I don't agree with your theology, but it's a great story. And I'm like, that's, that's okay. I, I don't need to debate you about the theology. Go ahead and just enjoy the story. Because I believe that despite that, the story will get through to them in a deeper way unconsciously than, than they're aware of in terms of pushing them in that direction of the theology. 
And it's not something that happens mentally or cognitively. It's something that happens in the soul. And that's, and, and I get that. I get that from the Bible. One of, one of the books that I wrote later on was called the imagination of God. And in that book, yeah. I tried to explain how I, as a Christian have struggled throughout my life as a sort of a schizophrenic of, of, or a bipolar or whatever you want to use, um, of an imagination and an intellect. I love intellectual things. I love scholarship. I love philosophy and theology, but I also love great stories. I love movies. I love, you know, beautiful paintings and stuff. And, um, and as an artist, that becomes a, a battle in sometimes in my soul, trying to, trying to, you know, have the imagination and have the depth but you don't want to become preachy or pedantic, you know, but at the same time, you don't want to let you, you don't want to uh, tell stories that are just meaninglessness and absurd or just flight flights of fancy without any meaning or purpose to them. So somewhere in the middle, middle is what I seek, seek to accomplish. But despite all that, I still believe that stories affect us, whether we think they are or not. And, and the, the simplest level would be, in terms of moral values, like I've already explained, you know, you, when you see characters making choices and their consequences, that's an affirmation of lifestyle choices, whether you agree with it or not, you're seeing it lived out. And you're like, like the book of Proverbs, right? You're seeing it lived out through human drama. Now, and, and it's another thing to say, you know, you, you, you read the book of Proverbs and it's great. And I believe, you know, and, and, and I believe in Proverbs and such, but I also believe that showing a story that lives out those proverbs has another way of connecting with our humanity in a way that the proverbs can't do so directly and um because i believe that we are both rational beings and imaginative beings some people might say emotional beings or existential beings so because we're a complex of issues um we uh, truth can get to us both through rationality, which would be philosophy, theology, et cetera, or through the imagination. So I'm, in my life, I'm focusing on the imagination in terms of my calling, but I'm rooted in a love for the theology and the truth. And so, yeah, that's, that's, so that's the long rambling uh, way of answering your question that I do you know believe that, what, it affects you whether you think so or not. Well, what's interesting is, you know, you are familiar with the Goslings podcast, because I think you've been on a couple of yeah. times with them. And I just uh, spent the majority of my Sunday with Jonathan Gosling, Goss this weekend. And it's funny, we got on the on a very similar topic because, you know, he, he is also a, a novelist. Um, and so so he was talking about the same thing about how 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 the overlaps that sometimes they're almost to tell a good story the way you want to tell it you almost have to take a little bit of creative licensing with theology, but without getting into the realm of heresy, <laughs> you know? So, uh, well, so yeah, really interesting. yeah, see, here's the thing that storytelling. Uh, now, when I say that I, I would, I would, you know, I would say it can apply to all art forms, but that's my focus and storytelling. You, the value of good art is the ability to capture and express the multifaceted perspectival nature of reality. So that um, while I'm not a relativist, I believe though that uh, we as human beings don't have a singular viewpoint. So there, you can look at truth from a multiple 
perspectives and draw different truths, right? So in the same way, um, good art, good storytelling is a ultimately, and I've written about this, where I think good storytelling is about a clash of worldviews. It is kind of a dramatic incarnation of a logical argument, which means you have two views, the villain, hero and the villain, and of course, the hero is the positive view that we believe in about life or reality. And the villain's view is what we believe is wrong, a wrong way to approach life or reality. But the clash of those characters is a clash of them living out their worldviews. And the victor, of course, is the superior worldview. So, so, um, but in order to do so in a way that's persuasive, or shall we say, not even, not even needing to be persuasive, just needing to be truthful, as a limited human being that I am, a good story is going to have, um, the, the heroes and villains won't be black and white. In other words, a villain will be rooted in somewhat of a reality out there, at least a, a, a viewpoint that sees itself as the hero. So you have to, when you tell a story, you have to show opposing viewpoints within a story as accurately and fairly as you can. They call that steel manning, right? You, in, in the logical argument, you steel man it, right? not straw man it. We, this is why we assume a story, you know, and, and the villains, you know, whatever, Snidely Whiplash, or, you know, the villains like this, you know, uh, lecherous, adulterous Christian who claims to believe in God. You know, when you make your villains into these absurd caricatures, they're not satisfying stories, are they? Yeah. But the more realistic you can make that villain and actually in, in some ways, make it persuasive. What is the best way of living out this worldview that I'm going to disagree with, but I've got to be fair to it? That's the bottom line. And that's where the honesty and integrity of me as a storyteller comes in. I want to accurately portray opposing viewpoints, um, even though I don't believe in them. And uh, a great example of that is my last movie that I made within this last year, uh, My Son Hunter. And my son Hunter is a political satire of Hunter Biden's laptop. <laughs> now, no one in Hollywood would distribute it, so you got to go online to see it. MySonHunter.com. Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. Well, anyway, what I did was I didn't want to do a documentary because that was that would be boring uh, for me personally. I, I I see value in documentaries, but there was just so much information that it would just be this relentless barrage of information, and even telling it as a story would be that way. So I chose to do the political satire route where you could jump around, jump in time, jump back and forth, make pithy comments, but also include a lot of the most important, pertinent, relevant facts, but do so in the context of humor. It allows you to get a lot more information out and the context shapes it, right? And so uh, what I'm getting to is, but when we wrote that, when, when we told that story, uh, I talked to the producers and we're like, we're not out to demonize Hunter Biden. Because we actually saw the Hunter Biden um, life as being a tragedy, yeah. a true tragedy of a person who's been given so much and has squandered it. But it's also a family tragedy of a father and two sons and the dysfunction that occurs, which is really quite universal. Uh, in, in some ways, you know, they're, they're high up in the echelons of power, but it reflects a common family dysfunction through that many of us have experienced in life right and so i thought that was very fascinating and interesting not you know I, we have the political component in there but it, i didn't tell the story in order to be a political story 
um, that was the context of, to me, which was the human story of this tragedy of Hunter Biden and his father in particular and their relationship. And so the consequence was that even though all the left media outlets just totally pissed on the movie, they just hated it. It was because it was so poignant. And some of them actually admitted that, you know, they actually treated Hunter pretty empathetically sympathetically, you know, and some of them were, this is how blinded they are by ideology, which is what I don't want to be as an artist, right? Um, even though the, the story has a point of view, I want to be as honest as I can about the opposing views. Well, some of them even said, you know, the, the filmmakers, I don't, I don't, I don't think they realized it, but they made Hunter empathetic, which, which is really kind of funny, you know, Thinking, in other words, they were assuming if they made a movie about their political opponent, yeah. they would that's demonize exactly it. Right. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. They couldn't understand. They couldn't understand humanizing this. That's how deluded so many people are. Boy, that, speaks artist, that speaks oh, volumes. That speaks volumes. That speaks volumes about the mindset of what journalism has become. They cannot fathom a world in which a story tells itself without a bias, you know? Yes. Or, or with a not, more bias. Not just journalism. The arts, Hollywood, Absolutely. right? So Absolutely. Hollywood has gone woke, and now we're seeing terrible, terrible renditions of stories, you know, the, the new Snow White, yeah. you know, and, and it's just like, and it's all driven by ideology. They are not interested in, uh, in entering into a different world with different views and to accurately portray that view uh, despite their own view. No, they have to transform uh, views that they don't agree with, transforming them into their own views and to demonize opposing views. And that's what they're doing with the movies. And that's why people are pulling out from movies in droves, like myself included. I'm in the business and I, I'm even like, I'm not watching as many of this stuff, as much of this stuff anymore, because it's just not satisfying storytelling. You know, all the action movies now have to be led by, um, you know, f five foot seven, 130 pound females who are right. kicking the butts of 200 pound men. It's just absurd, but it's right. literally every action movie now, oh, yeah. except for a Tom Cruise, you know, a handful of guys, but it's just so ridiculous. I don't even watch action movies anymore. Well, and even those guys, so and even though, even those guys, if you follow the story arc of the newer movies, you know, those are they're, they're along the way, this, uh, this last Indiana Jones, you know, the, the, the female, lead character, you know, who is his niece, his daughter, his something. Um, in any case, along the way, she's pointing out to him how old school he is and how he needs to get with the times. So even even the new roles that they're, you know, uh, even, even the big names that are that are still starring and carrying, uh, you know, the heavy hitters of the movies, even along the way, their characters are getting shown their error of their ways and their thinking and how old school they are. You know? yeah. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm sitting here thinking about the different ways that I feel like you've you've tried to um, blend together the the right side and the left side of the brain, if you want to put it like that, in your, in your movies. You know that. So I'm preaching this week on um, the rich the rich man and Lazarus, and I've come to the conclusion that Jesus is telling a fictional story of true events, true life characters. Um, that everybody in the world would have known exactly what he was doing by mentioning Lazarus, whom I believe he had just raised from the dead, and by mentioning a, a rich man who is wearing purple and linen, which is the which is the what the priest wears, and who has five brothers, which is what Caiaphas had, and like all these little details in the story, 
and as you're talking about my son Hunter, you know, this is one kind of genre where you don't have to preach at all. I mean, the this the yeah, the the subject matter speaks for itself. And so it's like you suddenly become free to just be able to tell a story. And then then like what you said is you you freak people out by actually telling the story, even though yeah. they know full well what the story's about. I think it's exactly what Jesus is doing. And but yet you've done different approaches. You know, you you've written um you know, you write all these books on the Nephilim, but then you have these nonfiction books or you'll have appendices at the end of them or you have footnotes in them. Where I mean, who has footnotes in their fiction books? Brian Gadawa, like that's it. And I, I just know. think it's, I, I've always thought it's so interesting that that you're trying to um, both tell a story without interrupting the story, but find a way to get the background material um, into people's brains so that they can understand it. Yeah, now that's that would be typically criticized by most in the, um, say, for instance, in the fictional world. You know, you do not footnote novels. Right. You're not right. supposed to do that. Right. But the reason why I did, and I, 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 so I'm deliberately breaking the rules, but I'm doing it so consciously. And one of the reasons why I footnoted my first novel what, uh, series, which was Chronicles of the Apocalypse, is because it deals with the book of Revelation and a viewpoint about the book of Revelation. And we, we all here know that, that people are very, very extremely committed to their views and radically opposing viewpoints. And so if you're going to tell a story about book of Revelation, and it's not a view that people uh, aren't interested in, or they're, they're very dubious of, if they start reading it and they'll go, where did he get this from? He's making this up, you know, because they're so un unfamiliar with it, right? And I just knew that in the world of eschatology, Christians are the only ones going to be reading this anyway, and Christians don't mind things like footnotes because they like to look up stuff in the Bible. And I'm like, so I'm going to footnote it, you know, and uh, and I didn't care, you know. But so at very least know how you came across, even if I'm going to disagree, disagree with you. And by the way, I tell it? people, I tell people it's only there if you want to look further, but you can just read over the footnote. And by the way, they're end notes, not footnotes. So they're not in, in right, the way right, as right. you're reading yeah, on yeah. the page. Right. You go in the back if you want to look and find more, right? But what happened was, uh, by the way, I got, I got the whole idea of writing appendixes after novels from Michael Crichton, one of my favorite authors, because he would write an appendix at the back of each novel explaining the, sci sci the, the science That's behind right. the science fiction he was writing. Yep. And I always love that. So I'm like, so what if people don't want, like purists, let's say, purists are the ones that, oh, you know, if you, have, if you feel like you have to explain everything's in your novel, then you're not a good novelist or not a good storyteller. And it's like, sometimes I don't want to have to explain things. I just want to let the story just do its work and that's fine. And sometimes I do that when people approach me, you know. But other times I just realize, you know what, people really appreciate it. And a lot of people have told me that. A lot of people have said, you know, I love the footnotes or the appendices as much as I love the novel. So I've been affirmed in that. So much so that... <laughs> that my latest novel, which we're here to talk about, Cruel Logic. So I changed, I changed <laughs> uh, genres, which is dangerous to do as a writer, but um, I changed genres to write this, uh, what I call a theological thriller. It's actually a story about a serial killer, kind of like Silence of the Lambs, that type of thing. And uh, so it's in the modern day. And I did end up footnoting and noting that as well, not as much as usual. But the reason why I did that was because the story is about a serial killer on a woke college campus. And the things that, are, that I have happen in the story are all drawn from the news, 
but also there's a lot of professors in what they're saying. And I, I want it rather than like, um, rather than writing my own version of it, of what these professors say, quoting various authors, I actually wanted them to quote various authors, whether it's Carl Sagan, Richard Dawkins, Sam Smith, Sam, um, who's the, uh, the atheist Harris. guys, Harris, Sam Harris, you know, I'm like, you know what? I want to actually use their words because they're very potent, iconic words. And I think that it, that's the level at which I'm, I'm dealing with this ideas, but I didn't want to, I, I, I don't want to plagiarize them. So I would footnote where if they're yeah. not literally quoting like so-and-so says, but they're just saying the words, I would put the footnotes so that people realize, hey, I'm not I'm not exaggerating in this. Stuff. This is actually stuff people actually say <laughs> because the, the, the logical conclusion of the novel is a very brutal uh, reality. Yeah. So you, uh, yeah, we might as well go to the, to the cruel logic. Um, uh, you had done a short film called Cruel Logic some 20 years ago or something like that, right? Yeah. I'm ashamed to say that. <laughs> You're ashamed. Why would you be ashamed to say that? You got the, you got the, you got, uh, what's his name from um, Arrested Development to play the, the main guy? Yeah, Tony Hale. Yeah, he was great. Tony Hale. Um, yeah. So what happened was I've been a Hollywood screenwriter and years ago I wrote this script, Cruel Logic. And that was actually inspired by one, one of my old favorite apologists in bat, way back in the day. His name was Walter Martin. And Walter Martin was like back in the 60s and the 70s. And Walter Martin was a rascal. Uh, he, was a, he was a plump guy, lively guy, really enjoyed him. And he was a fighter, but he also had a good sense of humor. And he was talking on this, this Long John Nebel show from back in the 60s. I was listening to the tape. So he's, a, years, he's the kingdom ago. of the cults, uh, kingdom of the cults guy, right? Yes. Kingdom of the cults guy. And he was talking on the show about how he's talking to atheists and he's trying to explain to atheists, you have no foundation for your morality and atheism. And he's like, yes, I do. I, I don't, I believe murder's wrong. I, he's like, well, yeah, you believe it's wrong, but you don't have a foundation to believe it's wrong because your atheism doesn't provide it. And the guy couldn't get it. In other words, so many people, so many unbelievers as well as believers, uh, they, they think, but they don't think about their thinking. They don't think beyond just the level of thoughts. They don't think about the way they're thinking and where they're getting their ideas from. And so Walter was saying, like, he gets so frustrated. He says, so finally, I just got frustrated. I said, okay, look, it's 1940s. I'm a German uh, Nazi with a gun pointing at your head. You're a Jew. Give me one reason why I shouldn't shoot you. And of course, it shut the guy up because he 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 it wouldn't he wouldn't couldn't give him anything, and and that never never left me. That just haunted me. And so by the time I was a screenwriter, um, and I always wanted to embody that because I've always loved apologetics, and much of my Christian faith has been uh, and and growth as a Christian has come through apologetics. I've loved philosophy and theology, and to me, it was a perfect embodiment of the moral argument for the existence of God. The typical probably one of the biggest problems that most people have with God and his existence is what's called the problem of evil, right? How could, how could there be an all loving, all powerful God with all this evil? Right. And, and they, many people think that, that, that evil is that strongest argument against God. I believe it is psychologically or emotionally, but certainly not logically, but, but, um, but what's interesting is I now believe that that is the strongest argument for God's existence. Because without God, there's no morality at all. And, and, and 
people don't understand that and they don't understand their own beliefs are contradictory. So the best way to do that is to say, okay, if we were to live by your ethics, by your morality, you know, if you believe man is an evolving animal, therefore morality is evolving, is evolving and morality is a social construct that is, you know, uh, utilized by people to control others, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay. If you really believe that, then if someone lived out according to your beliefs, this is what it would look like. And of course it's shocking because they don't, most unbelievers don't think through their beliefs to the logical conclusions of them. And so, um, you know, I, I speak about this, uh, this is the apologetic side of it, but at the end of the day, I also believe that I want to tell entertaining stories. So I love serial killer stories. I love a good thriller, right? And I thought, well, you know what? Philosophy can be very boring, as can be theology from some people, right? But if I can combine it into the world of a thriller with a serial killer, it might be an interesting way for them to think about these things like they haven't before. Yeah, That's the entertaining component of it. Um, and so I came up with this idea, and it was this. It was, what if there was a brilliant killer who was a philosophy professor? And what he would do is he would capture university professors and he would debate them. And the topic of, their, of his debate was his moral right to kill them. So he would ask them, okay, if what you say is true about reality, give me one valid reason why I shouldn't kill you and I'll let you go. And of course, atheistic worldviews have no, no foundation for morality. So they, they try and they try and they struggle, but they can't. And it, it's more complex than just that simple premise, but that's the setup. And then we also see the story of a, of a cop and a psychologist trying to track him down. And, and there's also a story of a evangelical Christian who goes to the woke college campus and he starts to be pulled into this journey of social justice. And it leads him down to the point in his life where he has to make some life and death decisions that are quite dangerous, you know? And so in fact, I'll, I'll send you the link. You can play it or something. The, um, I forgot to do this cause I was so busy. Uh, I've, I've made some commercials, little 30 second spots for crew logic. And, um, yeah. And so that, that's the premise of it. And then where that journey takes us is, is the, is, you know, the rest of the story. I mean, so when I, when I read this, Brian, you sent it to me a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, I just, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading in one way. Cause here you are embodying, um, the apologetic method that I've adopted, uh, 25 years ago into a fiction novel. <laughs> like this is so incredible. Nobody yeah. else has ever even, I don't think thought to try to do something like that. So it's just genius. But but the reason why I really wanted to have you on the show is because I, I just think that what you've done, especially in tack tackling the social justice and cultural Marxism component of this, I think it's, you know, in one way, it's one of the most important books that a person can read in our day and age. It's a totally different kind of importance than, you know, the supernatural stuff that you've been writing on, I've been writing on. Um, because you're dealing with you're dealing with politics, you're dealing with um, the the really the downfall of a civilization. We're in its in its death throes as we speak because of the, how this stuff has infected our culture. And I mean, I, I was just laughing out loud to myself. I have I have a highlighting in my in my book of all the red things, and that's kind of all the Marxist comments, and then all the green things, which are like all the truth comments, and like the whole thing is just 
packed with them. And I mean, you got like every single possible comment that you could that I've ever thought of or ever heard anybody say with cultural Marxism in this book. You can use yeah. it as a handbook for for yeah. you know for this. So that was my goal. Thank, I I thank you for for seeing that, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, I draw. I think that one of my strengths is I can draw from a lot of sources and embed them within my stories, but. You don't have to recognize that to appreciate. No, you don't. I think, yeah. I think people like you will go. That's that's from Marx. You know, like someone may say something like, you know, uh, uh, the 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 point the point or the philosophers have sought to um, speak about the world, but the point is to change it or something like that. And that's a quote from Marx. I may not say a quote from Marx, but there's a lot of those statements in there uh, because I wanted to embody their their views. But I also wanted to do it in a way that um, you don't have to be an intellectual to appreciate it. And so, or you know, I say intellectual, say a scholar. You know, you don't have to be a scholar. But if you are, you will appreciate those a lot of those references. So that's the, <laughs> that's the balance I want to get there. <laughs> I got to ask you, how much time did you spend like in research and looking up specific things bef b between the the point that you first started writing the book form of this to the end of it. Wow. Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, I know in one way it's kind of like a lifetime of research and yeah, you've been thinking about yeah. it for 20 years, but at the same time, it, it's so specific. And I just thought as I'm reading it, I'm like, this would take me, this would take me years to be able to compile this into a, into something like that. Okay. Well, I've always been on top of the woke growth for the last five years, not on top of, I follow it as various conservative commentators address it. And I was introduced to that. Um, but interestingly, what, what happened was, so I was aware of it. And, you know, I like to keep up in the news. So I was also, I was also aware of what's been going on in college campuses um, as the woke thing goes. But I never looked, I never studied it deeply. I just knew it from a news perspective of what's going on. And here's some of the ideas. Here's what they say. And wow, that's that's amazing. That's shocking. Then I might read a book or two here or there. That's about the the, the depth of it. But while, while I began this, writing this novel, also that's what, that's um, when, um, someone sought to bring critical race theory into a church. And because of that, I stopped working for three weeks and I finally bone up on all the critical race theory materials, books wow. about it, books by critical race theorists, Delgado, those guys. And of course, in the, in the context of all that, it's not now critical race theory is that, that racist, theory about, you know, whites are inherently racist and we all have privilege and we need to give up our power and as if we have power and, you know, that, that sort of specific uh, derivative, but it all comes from critical theory, which is more rooted in postmodernists and the Frankfurt school. And where I learned the most I learned about that has come from a couple different authors. One is James Lindsay, who's been writing a lot on, on mm -hmm. the woke reality and Christopher Rufo, I highly recommend them, but also Jordan Peterson, you know, these yeah. guys have addressed a lot of this stuff as it, as it occurs on campus. So that's where I, in that three week, that's when I de deep dove while I was 
so it, it happened fortuitously, right? When I'm writing my novel, it's like, oh, it's a good thing I did because I learned a lot more that helped me. So it was like three weeks of in-depth just reading and, and taking notes and stuff. And, um, you know, and like I said, then I, I, I'm always just interested in current events to some degree and, and going deeper than just the political level, but philosophically what's going on, you know, because I always do think in terms of civilization. So in, my, in, the, in the novel, Cruel Logic, uh, one of my protagonists is Joseph Callinger, and he is a he is a uh, clinical psychologist who also teaches at the school in psychology, and he's kind of like a Jordan Peterson, you know. He, he, he's not Jordan Peterson, but he was inspired by Jordan Peterson. And there's you this Jordan and and some other guys in, are in this camp of um, intellects who are defending Western civilization, uh, and and the Judeo-Christian component of it, while they themselves are not necessarily Christians. Yeah. So you've got Douglas Murray, who's just brilliant, you know, um, and then you've got Tom Holland and Jordan Pearson. And these guys, it's just amazing how, but, but I find their goal to be truly fascinating. And I discovered that by and large, Western civilization, Western civilization has been, um, you know, completely, almost completely excised from higher education, but not fully. In fact, it was just within five years ago that Stanford students had sought to re, uh, bring back some Western civilization requirements to their school. So that was kind of shocking to me. Wow, even at Stanford, there are some students who are willing to try to stand up for Western civilization. And that was intriguing to me because that, to me, that, that, that goal of trying to save Western civilization at, uh, in the university became the overriding metaphor for what was happening in my story for Cruel Logic, right? Because as a civilization um, uh, rejects God, the consequences are, is, is the, the, the ultimate denigration and devolution of that civilization, right? Into chaos, anarchy, and evil. And so that's the big picture concept that I, I see in that journey. And so I, I wanted to, but I, but I also, it was like, it's so fascinating to me because I, I have so, nothing but massive respect for Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray and these guys. And I, I, I sit at their feet and learn from them. But it's so interesting to me that, that they can be so positively affirming of Christianity and yet not be believers themselves. And so that was also an issue that I wanted to wrestle yeah. with in my story because what is that? What makes that difference, you know? And I'll leave it to the uh, readers, yeah. to, to the audience, to read the novel, to see how I work through that issue. But it was a general, genuine, honest question, you know, like, what is it like to be that way? And then what are the ramifications of that? So, yeah, you know, one of the dominant themes throughout the whole novel is on many different levels is ideas have consequences. Yep. And whether you're a Christian or non-Christian or whatever, whatever you let in and whatever you start to promote in terms of ideas, people end up behaving logically consistent with that eventually. Absolutely. So I didn't ask you this question ahead of time and I'll, I'll keep it delicate. If you want to answer it, feel free. But when you gave us the novel, you told us a little nugget about the names and as I'm, as I'm reading the names, I'm literally looking everyone up. I'm like, no way, no way, no way. First okay. of all, 
what was going through your head? Um, and do you want to do you want to tell everybody about this little nugget, or do you want them to go and figure it out themselves? Ooh, that's a good challenge. <laughs> you know, the the uh, apologist in me wants to explain it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, there's some Easter eggs, and um, you know, uh, so honestly, the, most uh, people, I I I don't think hardly anybody would ever get what you did unless at least they're made aware that there's something to go and look for. <laughs> Fair enough. And by the way, that's the way I wanted it because I, it, it really was nothing more than as an artist, you seek to, you seek to craft your art uh, so that every aspect of it reflects the theme that you're dealing with, right? Um, every aspect of the story. And it doesn't necessarily prove anything. It's just, it's just a creative means. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm dealing a lot with human nature. And of course, in the context of crime and evil, right? And you've got a serial killer going on there in the university. And the whole question of, of course, classical questions that have always been around, you know, not only the problem of evil and the existence of God, but human nature. Are we basically good or basically evil? And then What's the cause of criminality? Is it nature or nurture? I, I wrestle with all these issues because it all comes down to this human understanding of human nature and where you get that idea. And as a Christian, um, you know, I, I argue for original sin, for total depravity, the biblical view that we are essentially evil in our natures. And, um, and uh, so therefore, before God, we all have a, have a need or an obligation uh, for salvation. And the humanists do tend to believe that man is basically good, you know? And so um, one of the ways that I thought I would capture, oh, but specifically, you know, I do have a, a view, what you might call the reformed view, which is uh, total depravity. And, and what that is, is that it's not just that man's bad, but that, and it's not even that man is as evil as he can be. Right. But it's that evil has affected every aspect of who we are, not just our moral nature, but even our intellect, such that we use logic to manipulate. We manipulate logic to justify our evil. Right. Uh -huh. So our, all it's called the noetic effect of sin, meaning all of our faculties as human beings has been stained by sin. It's not just that, oh, we got a little badness in us. You know what I mean? Like, but it doesn't mean that we are all completely as thoroughly as evil as we can be. However, if we take our beliefs to their logical conclusion, uh, what would that look like, right? So I decided to um, you know, use as the naming convention for all the characters in my novel, I chose to, I decided that I wanted to name every fictional character in there was based on the name of an actual serial killer in history. So I had to go to like serial killer encyclopedias. I like hundreds of names, right? Because I didn't just pick any old name. I wanted to pick names that were also seemed germane. And of course, I'm not going to use names mm -hmm. like, um, uh, what, um, some, some names that people would recognize. I didn't want to use real recognizable names. Gary Dahmer, you know, I mean, I'm not going to use that. Or right. John Wayne Gacy, right? So right. I had to find names of serial killers and I was amazed to find out how many really serial killers there are in history. It's really disturbing. Um, but, and that was of course to be an expression of that to in a, in a sense, that same serial killer nature is in each of us. That's a creative way of communicating depravity, but there's one character who is not, 
whose whose name in the story is not based on a serial killer. It's actually the detective. His name is Cornelius Van Till. And of course, he's an and obscure. I read that. I started laughing out loud. <laughs> I know. I yeah yeah. Like, Some there are a few, few people that, like man. you, and Cornelius Van Til is in you know oh, my mind's one of the one of the greatest uh, apologists in the 20th century, and hardly anybody would know him. But he's sort of the the apologist whose uh, approach to apologetics has influenced me probably among the most, and. Um, yeah. And, and this whole embodiment, uh, even though I told you I got this idea from Walter Martin, I think the, the particular approach to the argument about evil uh, and the way I take it is kind of rooted in Cornelius Van Til's um, uh, apologetics, right? And, um, but there's also something else. So, but when you're reading the novel, it's like, it, they're just arbitrary names. I don't, I'm not saying, you know, don't be looking for something like, does this name represent something or, you know, I was just picking right, names that would right. work within the story. But I also decided to, uh, for just for kicks, I thought I would, you know, how college campuses have, they have names on all their buildings, you know? Yep, so yep. I wanted to make that more interesting. So I decided to name all the buildings on campus after, after one of the possible suspects of Jack the Ripper. So, uh, yeah, so I've got all those, not all of them, but again, you know, you're not going to see, maybe you may not see your favorite name in there. I, th I think I do have Walter Sickert Hall. Yeah, I do have that. But, you know, there's a lot of names that aren't in there, but I just drew from that again, just as a creative sort of Easter egg. I see it as an Easter egg. There's nothing, there's no deep profound thing other than just wanting to have every aspect sort of reflect that thematic meaning. And if people pick it up, fine. If they don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. What, ma what matters to me is creating the beauty and letting God use it in people's lives, however he wants. But of course, uh, for a program like yours, I'll be happy to explain it because I know that your audience will appreciate that kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to go to the Van Til thing for a minute. Um, just because, uh, you know, I think we will have some listeners that will be familiar enough with what's going on there. Um, you know, it was interesting that you brought up Walter Martin um, using this argument. My understanding is that it's called the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And it's basically the idea that um, it, I think Bonson and Van Til talked about the impossibility or, uh, the impossibility to the contrary, you know, yeah. um, your worldview follows this, these logical paths and, and um, you have these arguments for why God exists, why he doesn't exist. And what people don't often talk about is that when you're using things like reason, rationality, logic, you're actually borrowing from God's world just to use those things in order to then turn around and say that he doesn't exist. And so I really, really enjoyed how you were able to embody the transcendental argument or the existence of God. And you even, um, at one point, you brought in a little bit of classical apologetics for, um, you know, the design argument, the cosmological argument and stuff like that. And you used, I, I think in a good way, and I, I don't want to rip on classical apologetics. Um, I think it has value. I think Van Til has value. I think they, there's probably weaknesses in both, but you show Absolutely. something that, uh, um, that I think a lot of, this is kind of the honesty part, you know, you show, in the classical apologetics that 
there's more than one way to go about arguing the design argument. And atheists use those arguments in the exact opposite way that Christians do. Um, and so it's kind of like, to me, I've thought for a long time that at the end of the day, you're kind of left with just this impossibility of the contrary argument that Van Til talks about. And it's, I've, I think it's such an incredibly powerful argument. And the very fact that you use it as the basis for your serial killer's um, you know, reasons for, give me a reason, I'll let you go, sort of a thing. Yeah. I thought it was amazing. So you want to talk about a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, you're right. That, that goes to the honesty component as, as a writer, I, um, I don't, how can I say it? You know, I mentioned steel manning or the idea of being honest about the, your own failures or flaws or weaknesses in your own view or what have you. And of course, you know, the arguments for the existence of God been around forever, teleological, ontological, right? But I yep. actually do believe that some of those, uh, the ways that many Christians use those arguments, free will argument, right? I actually believe that they're not good arguments, logically speaking. Now, that's not to say that they don't work with people emotionally and all that, but yep. but there are, and and that's something that Christians would be afraid to, like, what you're saying? Because they they confuse, this is what C.S. Lewis brought out you know, one time. He said, he he had, he had gone to a, a debate and and he had he had he felt he had actually lost the debate, you know. I think it was when he was with G G Anscombe, and she was actually a Catholic, so she's a believer, but she was demolishing his arguments, you know. And and he's like, he felt really sad, and he goes, "Well, it's not because, it's not because I I I, I whatever I I believe I was wrong about my beliefs, but I would I realized that people could confuse an argument for the existence of God." with the existence of God, which means an argument for the existence of God may not be a good argument. That doesn't mean God's not, it doesn't exist. Right, it just means right. not, that's not a good argument. And right. I think that we're afraid to face those things. And I, I had to come to that point where it's like, yeah, I've often had problems with the traditional arguments for the existence of God. You know, it's like, uh, and, and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to show that. I'm going to show that because I'm not afraid to deal with weaknesses, even within the Christian faith. You know, I have a Christian character who goes to the college and you know, he's struggling with porn, which is a very, very common thing in a lot of male Christians' lives, something that a lot of Christians don't want to talk about or are afraid to talk about. And I also deal with beliefs that he has about the end times and all this that are that place him in a easy prey situation um, because they're they're not well equipped to deal with true unbelief or good good arguments from unbelievers, that kind of kind of thing. And so I wanted to be honest about that, you know, and I think what you were saying before is 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 the is a good way to say it. Um, how I might say it is, yeah, the transcendental argument for the existence of God is is basically the the biggest proof for God's existence is that without Him, you can't prove anything at all. Can't prove anything the at all, moral right? argument for the existence of God is without Him, you have can't you have argue no morality. morality at all. The big the the scientific argument for the existence of God is without Him you can't have science. In other words, God is the only foundation for all these things that we assume or presuppose in our own dialogue. And I said this earlier, where it's like so many people, Christians and non-Christians, assume so many things when they're talking or they're arguing, and they don't realize that they're they're begging the question. They're assuming these things like science. You know, well, I believe in science, and I'm an atheist, and science, and science. And science disproves God. And it was like, 
you don't realize that if you're an atheist and you have no foundation to, to believe that there's uniformity of nature, so you cannot argue that the tr past or the future will be like the past, which is the very foundation of, of inductive reasoning. It's like you have no basis to, to argue for that. You can't even have science without some kind of God, and I would argue the triune God, basically, beneath uh, as the creator of the universe, because otherwise the atheistic worldview says ultimately at bottom, everything is really randomness, right? It's, the universe is random, right? Evolution is random. And so you have no um, proper philosophical foundation for the very thing that you are arguing. You don't think about your own thinking. You don't think about the foundations of the things you're, you're assuming. And I want to get people to think about these and, and go back further in the way you're thinking. Only, is, this a, is this just a philosophical trick? Is this a philosophical parlor trick? Is this a theological tactic? No, what it really is, is this. It's Romans 1. It is, it is the belief, why I, why I be believe in doing that is, that the unbeliever is not a person who just simply is not persuaded by the intellectual evidence mm -hmm. of God. And that if you can produce the right argument, show him where he's wrong, um, you know, give him enough evidence to believe in the Bible and, and such, then he'll become a Christian. No. The unbeliever hates God and doesn't want to know God. And, and he, in fact, he knows God and suppresses that truth and unrighteousness. So really, all of the unbeliever's approaches to science, reasoning, they're all attempted covers to uh, keep that knowledge of God suppressed so that he or she does not have to be accountable to their creator. That's how I see uh, unbelievers. And I don't see them as just, you know, Oh, basically decent people. And yeah, they're smart. And if they just had enough evidence, if they could just see, if they could just see that their belief, their arguments are wrong, then they'll realize, no, they won't. The only way they'll, they'll realize it is by the Holy Spirit actually changing them. That's right. But as I'm talking to them, my goal is to show, is to argue not, here's enough evidence so you'll believe. It's, no, you already believe, you already know God. You're suppressing him. And everything that you're saying to me proves that you're suppressing him because you are engaging in reason. There's no foundation for reasoning in atheism, only in the triune God. You know God and they're suppressing him. The only reason why you're arguing science is because you, you do know there's a, there, there's a God who, who's the foundation of that science, because otherwise you couldn't engage in science. That's, that's kind of the, that's the a gist of the transcendental approach to yeah. arguing for God. It's not just a philosophical thing. It's actually trying to apply the spiritual truths of the Bible to your interaction with unbelievers. I've always said that the um, the same operating software, if you will, that that basically was the downfall of Satan, pride, um, arrogance, um, is is very prevalent in the in the operating software of the atheist. A lot of it is the arrogance, that innate arrogance and pride, to not admit that we are not the be all end all as a race, you know. As intellectuals, so yeah, that that resounds a lot with uh, with my way of thinking as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's funny too because here we are talking about this in-depth philosophical apologetics <laughs> argument. It's always my fear that people are going to go, "Well, that's not very entertaining." It's like, oh no, it is. <laughs> we that's just our geeky side coming out. It's, you know, but it's, but it's <laughs> relevant. It is. It's so relevant, though. You know, it's so relevant. And and the thing is that unfortunately, out in the in the world, out in society, that 
in, in large part, we were needlessly losing the argument, you know, losing the, yeah. losing the narrative, you know. And much like you say, a lot of it is, is seeing that. You're not really arguing to convert the atheist. That's the Holy Spirit's position. But you can defend the faith uh, successfully. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there was uh, um, Mike Heiser wrote two novels. He didn't get to finish his third. Somebody's going to have to write that for him. Um, but when I read his second, his second um, book, The Portent, he had a whole long section in there about the birth of Christ on 9-11. And it was really interesting because he, uh, you know, his main character was kind of himself, a theologian kind of a guy. And for just this one little section in there, I thought, well, this is just Mike, the theologian, not knowing how to write fiction very well, because he basically just used this character to give a 30 minute seminar on the birth of Christ that he does on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I bring this up because, because the way that you do it in the book, even though you're kind of doing the same idea, you're not doing it in the same, like just kind of tacky, tacky sort of a way because he didn't know how else to get it across. I think. Um, and he, yeah. it's funny in his first book, he didn't come across like that at all to me. Um, it was much better kind of a novel story sort of a thing, but, but uh, yeah, so just, just for people that are like afraid of being geeked out by it, I don't think they need to be at all. I want to say one other thing about the argument that just for some people that, that kind of know about the history of the, of the apologetics, um, it's interesting to me that now you've brought up C.S. Lewis and Walter Martin, and neither one of those guys are reformed. And in fact, there's whole articles on C.S. Lewis and the transcendental argument in philosophy journals that you can go and look up because this isn't something that's just peculiar to reform theology. This is something like you said, that's really going back to Romans one and our, uh, you know, the, the noetic effects of sin that is over all of us. And every Christian, um, if they really are a Christian believes in total depravity, whether they want to state it like that or not, they believe that we're all sinful. And so really what you're doing with that argument doesn't matter if you have tulip as your guide or or not is you're trying to wrestle with that and and i think that the transcendental argument does a great job of using using um the effects of sin and our rationality in a way that the other arguments for existence of god just don't do exactly exactly i'm not and i'm not like a person who will just condemn all other ways of doing No, I mean, different God uses different people in different ways to touch people with different psychologies, different, you know, needs and, and such. And, and, um, but I do want to be, I want to pursue the, you know, the strongest argument to me. And, and that definitely, that definitely struck me in my pursuit to understand my faith and how to defend my faith. Um, when I came across that tr transcendental approach, right. It was, it was the most impactful to me that I've ever experienced. Yeah, and so I think a lot the, of people have never it. run across the argument before, Brian. You know, I, I think the cosmological, teleological, those arguments, those are kind of in our evangelical vocabulary. And most people, when they hear them, they go, yeah, I've heard that before. The yeah. argument for design, you know, um, yeah. watch, a watch doesn't make itself sort of thing. But I, I think this is another one of the reasons why people should read the book is because to familiar to familiarize yourself with an argument for God's existence that you may not have ever heard before and really feel the power of it through the embodiment of the storytelling 
I think can be pretty helpful for people. Yeah. Yeah. My goal was to be like the, um, um, the RC Sproul of storytelling. You know, <laughs> one, one of the things I loved about RC was he that- He hated presuppositional apologetics, by the way. I know, I know. <laughs> but, um, but I loved how he, he was, I, I call him the working man's theologian. You know, yeah, I even love that sort of like blue collar accent that he had, you know? And, uh, but he would, you know, he would challenge his listeners he, to, to raise the bar on thinking, but he didn't get caught up into academic, you know, gobbledygook. He tried to challenge him to think a little bit deeper, but he also made it, um, made it very, uh, um, uh, relevant to, to them, you know, to our lives, you know, as, as much as possible, but raise the bar. And, and that's what I want to do. It's like, I'm, I, you know, I wrote this thinking, you know what, I'm going to write what I really love and I'm not going to try to preach anything, but I want to write the level that I want to write. And I want to challenge people to think a little bit, but hopefully it'll be in an entertaining context so that it'll help them as they do. Like, do you ever see like, um, you know, you ever see a movie where you're brought into this different world, uh, you know, one of the ones that always comes to my mind, which is an older movie, but it's it's not the only example. There's, there's lots of them. Wall Street. Remember that Wall Street yeah. movie, you know, um, with, uh, what was it? Michael Douglas. And, Michael and, Douglas, um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I remember when I first watched that movie, like, uh, or, you know, like the big short, right? You know, they, yeah. they pull you into this world of whatever it is, like Wall Street was all the day traders and stuff. And they're running around, they're talking to each other, and you can hardly understand what they're saying. You get, you can figure out a little bit of it, you know, but you get this sense of like, of the authenticity of it. Like, this is, this is this world, and it's fascinating. And I can understand just enough that I can follow the story and enjoy it and feel like I've been introduced to a new world, you know? I literally, watched, I, like, I literally watched The Big Short last night for the first time. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I really? Thought, oh, yeah. And I thought the exact same thing, how much detail went into the writing of it, because I got stuff playing over my head. I mean, I know as much about the housing market as the, the next guy. Yeah. But but I'm hearing, and, and the, the, the art, the talent in the writing, to work into the script, the explanation of the big terms and not make yes. it sound like they're doing that, you know? Exactly. That was my yeah. goal as well. By the way, the big short was one of my inspirations for my son Hunter. Um, you know, you break the fourth wall, you talk yeah. to the audience, fantastic. you know, all that. And like you said, you got to cover all this complex information. How do you make it interesting? You put it in this quick world, but you, you, do, you explain just enough of it so you get the gist and it yeah. works. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yes, that, that was an inspiration for, for my son Hunter as well. But um, there's another example too that I was thinking of. Yeah, but anyway, so it's that, it's that, oh, and then I wanted to pull people into the woke college campus. And again, drawing some real stuff that was, has gone on, and you get in this campus world, and it's just insane what they're doing, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and as you're brought through it and you hear all this diversity, equity, and inclusion dialogue, and you have all these AIT tests to test your implicit bias and all this stuff is going on. But I try to communicate in a way that you get the gist of what's going on, which is this is the this is basically the rise of fascism that that's yeah. that's seeking to take to destroy our civilization. And I mean that literally destroy. Yeah. And the goal is to reduce the culture of chaos. So that a police that will rise up and take control and cause trouble with the police. They want to get into it. Um, so this is the the current 
sort of um, um, uh, protest culture that we now have comes from the university, you know, just like the 60s, right? But it's very, it's very, it's driven by a very distinct strategy and, and worldview, right? And that's what becomes the Antifa, but also the BLM protesters, all those people been influenced by that university, uh, woke, um, postmodern sort of um, reduction of everything to power. This is why you always get the accusations. Oh, you're just a white man who you don't want to give up your power. You're you're just you're just got white privilege because you got all this power and you got all this privilege, and they they are deliberately interpreting everything as power, and therefore those who have power are oppressors, and those who don't have it are the oppressed, and then that justifies their attempt to overthrow it. And one of the means by which you accomplish that, if you if you're sick and tired of the incremental, if you want things to happen fast, is is chaos. You reduce things to chaos. And so uh, the Antifa, and again, I, I drew from Andy No, a very you know, uh, amazing writer on who's written about Antifa, had his own life threatened. He almost died being attacked by them, and they're still seeking to destroy him. So I draw from writers who, who know about what's going on with Antifa and the kind of things that they're actually doing and their goals and what they're planning. And I try to bring all that into the mix as well because – all of that still originates in that original um, uh, university intellectual um, neo-Marxism. It basically comes it comes back to that. You know, it's a it's a it's an attempt to ha to start a revolution. And what happened was the Marxists of the olden days saw that the economics theory didn't yeah. work, <laughs> especially as America, you know, <laughs> just. You know, capitalism just you know saved the world basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what happens was they shifted to cultural Marxism. That's where you've got the postmodernists and the Frankfurt School, yep. who who you know, and they come over from from Germany and France, and um, and so their goal was okay, rather than capturing the means of production, that's Marxism, rooted in economics, they wanted to uh, control control the production of meaning. It's like swapping of the words, right? In other words, nice. if you control the, the um, source of information and the means and communication of information, then you will control the culture. And so that's what they've done. And that's what we're in the process of now. And that's why they have speech codes and, and censorship. All that is part of suppression of dissenting voices so that they can reinforce their own power views on other people. And they believe everything's reducible to power. So therefore, if everything's reducible to power, then they, it's, they justify themselves grabbing power, however, by whatever means necessary, right? And that's, that's, um, that's the more activist component that is going on in that woke world again, rooted in the university. And I tried to bring out what's, what is, what is that leading us to as well? Well, and, and you there's a back, civilizational conflict, you know, and yep. you, go, you go back to, to guys like, like Jordan Peterson, you know, we wouldn't know Jordan Peterson had he not taken such a strong stance against that. I mean, he, he said, I will not be bullied, you know, and he said it as an academic and that's, and that's it. I mean, in as much as it worked for him and it, you know, catapulted him into into being a you know a household word, a household name. 
it could very well have worked against him too, you know, and, and, but, but, but it was the, his audacity, his, you know, that, that's, that's bravery. That to me is courage. And I dare say that there are other Jordan Petersons out there and they're just, they don't know if they want that as, as the kids say, they don't want the smoke, you know? So, um, but, but that's, that's very, that's absolutely right. It's very inspiring. And the, the, uh, the irony is that, um, is how convinced this demographic thinks of their moral reasoning. The fact that Antifa is the leading edge of the sword into fascism. It just is, you know, but yeah. they're convinced. They're convinced otherwise. They're convinced that, they're, that their cause is just. One of the things that I do in the novel um, is that uh, I, I show the power, I show the war of words. I explore the power of language for justifying one's actions and behaviors. So for, for, for example, um, you know, in, in the beginning of all this, when I was still learning about wokeism and all that, and I would wonder, like, I remember even years ago, like, wow, why would they use such extreme language calling Republicans Nazis? It's so, it's literally absurd. Yeah. And then of course, you know, Trump was Hitler or DeSantis is Hitler. They called Ronald Reagan Hitler, by the way, too, but it was more, it was more subtle back then. <laughs> but, um, you know, and then why would, why would the Department of Justice, which is controlled by uh, the Democratic Party, why would they seek to define parents protecting their children in, you know, and, or actually parents exercising their right to go to a school board meeting and, and, and express their beliefs, which is, that's the foundation of, of America, right? Freedom of expression and, and such. Why would they define those as domestic terrorists? It's like, that's absurd. Like everybody knows it's absurd. What are they doing? Why are they calling the J6 an insurrection? That's obviously absurd. It's a bunch of idiots maybe who got out of control, you could argue, but it's like insurrection. That means like armed trying to take over the government. And it's like, what is this language all about? Well, now I know and now I understand it's, it's that you, uh, the, the postmoderns, first of all, believe that reality is not knowable. Some of them may believe there is no reality. Reality is just whatever you define it as, right? This is where we get this notion of social constructs, right? They, you know, reality is a social construct. Your sex is a, your gender is a social construct. They don't believe that there is either a reality or if there is, it's, a, it's not knowable. So all we have is different people from different identity groups with different perspectives defining reality as they see it your or the individual. Your truth, yeah. your truth yeah. or my right. truth, yeah. Right. So if you believe that reality is certainly not knowable, or maybe not at all, it's just, well, then how do you, how do you access uh, the reality that we live in, right? How do you access power and control? Well, you control through the control, uh, through the use of language. They believe that language actually is how it um, shapes the way we think about reality. Now, I would agree, language shapes the way we think about reality. That's why, the, why, that's why they're so focused on changing definitions and words all the time because they're guiding us to their view of reality, right? Now, they, some of the postmoderns would actually believe that since there is no noble reality, 
language is all we have. Language is reality. That's our reality. So therefore, control the language, control reality. To a certain degree, they're right in the sense that it controls how we think about it. So this is why they are all, we're always changing the words, even way back to, you know, not just Nazi euphemisms like, like um, uh, you know, the, the abortion thing, you know, uh, pregnancy is, you know, an unborn child is actually a fetal, fetal tissue cells and all that. That's, they, we, euphemisms have been going on forever. But specifically, the political um, pursuit of power, you, you define your enemies in extremist terms that mentally and morally, according to our conventions, justify violence, right? Because domestic terrorists, right? When we hear domestic terrorists, we think, oh, that's a, you know, the basic or white supremacists, right? You think, oh, those people right. who believe they're superior and others should be slaves. Uh, white uh, domestic terrorists are people who usually use, they use violence to achieve political ends, which often results in murder, right? So, so they're linking Nazis are genocidal. So they're trying to link these extremist, violent, genocidal terms with their political opponents, the Republicans or conservatives. And then that's what ultimately justifies their violence against us. So it begins with economic violence, right? They cancel you, they demonetize you, they stop you from being able to use your banks, right? They get you so that you, you starve to death, which is ultimately murder. But, but nonetheless, they, they start with economic violence. But the ultimate goal is physical violence against the conservative body or against the Christian body. They want to imprison us and get us out of the way so they can control you know, the reality. And, and we are the impediment of them controlling reality because our views are the Judeo-Christian yep. Western civilization views. That's why the university is so focused on getting rid of Western civilization. It's the bulwark Absolutely. against chaos. Yep. Yeah, Jordan talks about... Uh, um, it just in the from a Greek perspective, the logos, you know, and and the power of the logos. And from a Christian perspective, of course, we believe that the logos, I mean, it's the word. And so we believe that the word has power and you can have perverted views of it, like word of faith and stuff. But nevertheless, like you said, the word is powerful by itself because it it influences things that then influence other things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we just happen to believe that the word is incarnate in the person of Jesus. And that makes us different from even the Greeks and their Western civilization. Yeah. And what's, and, and and what, no, sorry. And, and what, what's crazy about that is, you know, it's, it would seem like at least in the, in defense of conservative ideas, we really are the last bastion in the world because you look at places like England, they've won, they have succeeded. Canada, they have yeah. succeeded. You use the wrong euphemism misplaced term at the wrong time they will run you out of business or put you in jail yep. you know and i and i believe ryan exactly what you're saying that that um but that, that the, the word the, the 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 weaponizing the word um, or the or, or the redefinition of them as well as believe it or not and i don't want to get too far too too out on left field out of this or right field i should say the second amendment as well um those two things get moved out of the way and they win. They, they yeah. straight up And that's one of my complaints about the right um, or about conservatives is that we, we, we're, we're good at complaining, but we don't engage in, we don't engage in tactics back. Yeah, and I'm not exactly saying right. to yep. be exactly Absolutely. like them. 
like we should be using language war back. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and to some extent there are some who do, but I mean, why is it that, um, but we don't do it on a systemic level, you know, like for instance, they will go, you know, uh, these parents, you know, go to these meetings and then the DOJ gets alerted to it and they're told, well, use the word domestic terrorist because then that justifies the DOJ getting involved, right? That's, that's what that was about. And then DOJ says, we didn't call it domestic terrorists. They did, but they worked, they can, uh, colluded with each other to use that term in order to ju justify them, right? But then all the news media picks up on that and then all of them start referring to them domestic terrorists, domestic terrorists. So we need to do that, but we don't do that enough. No, you know? we don't, we don't. Um, yeah, we need to, you know, when we're referring to things, we need to, to now we sometimes we we do like with the pro life cause sometimes that's we've done that. Um, it's funny I, I you know um, in in the latest in the last five years I, I've seen a, a stronger willingness by pro lifers to really to really call it murder. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah, 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 yeah. it is murder, yes. right? But it's like I, I realize that there's a lot of women in the movement and they feel like that using that terminology makes the women feel put off, et cetera. I don't agree with it, but I understand their desire for, for compassion. But the truth is we need to call things what they truly are because that will bring about the brokenness and repentance that's required, right? Absolutely. Um, but I, I don't say that uh, glibly. I mean, I really, it's, we need to think these things through and be, and, but recognize and use language to, re, to get def definitions of reality, reality back to what they should be. <laughs> I feel like I feel like a lot of um, I, I, I think back often to the election that, that John McCain ran as a, a Republican ticket. And I remember watching him come out on stage the week after the, the Democratic convention, which had Hollywood involved and had the big moving lights on stage and the rock bands and rap artists. And then cut to the Republican convention and no disrespect to him as a man. But out walks out under one spotlight, this tired old man. And I thought yeah. to myself, we're done. <laughs> we are done. And, and it felt really hopeless as far as being a conservative. But I feel like there's been an influx of younger blood over the last 10, 15 years uh, that's given us the likes of the Ben Shapiro's and the, you know, um, Candace Owens and, and whatnot. So I, I feel like like the, the more reinvigorated younger crowd is bringing a little bit more boldness because they if you are a conservative and you're a younger person, just just those two factors already makes you a strong and bolder person in today's yeah. in today's climate. And it's just if you're going to survive, absolutely. And you know we have Daily Wire is making move good movies with good values in them. Um, they're getting involved in, you know, they publish books that this is conservatives have to have a vision for culture. Absolutely. And that's where we're failing because, and by the way, I, you know, as a Christian in Hollywood for many years, um, I've seen this, unfortunately, Christians and conservatives don't still don't believe in culture enough yep. to invest their own money in it. Yep. And it, it is a danger. It is a high risk investment. But the truth is when you've got, I've got friends who've made movies and when, you know, uh, even you know, friends who've made this, this Ronald Reagan movie that's going to be coming out soon, it's really good. Yeah. But, you know, you'd think that, okay, these conservatives getting together, making a Hollywood movie with Hollywood actors and production values about Ronald Reagan, you'd think you could get the conservative 
billionaires and millionaires to fund that movie because they had to. It took them 10 years and they only got half the funding they needed. So they mm. made a good movie, made a very good movie with a lot less funds. But it's like, at, at the end of the day, it's like conservatives when it really comes down to their own money. No, unfortunately, they are often cl the cliche that they're accused of being, which is you just care about money yep. and you don't care about the culture. Yep. But admittedly so, money uh, movies are a high-risk business, but nevertheless, left-wing people don't care about losing their money if they can control culture or change culture. Absolutely. And they, they believe that for so long. And that's the predicament we're in. But now we do have some parallel uh, parallel economies that are being created. Yes. Daily Wire is an example of that. The Angel Studios, right? They just put Fantastic, out Sound of right? Freedom, which is 180 million, yeah. and they're chosen, and they're doing it, and it's it's like yes, and uh, and you know more what? Of that. And, and and they've made a statement, which is important. Yeah, you know, they made the statement, like you're saying, that it can be done, that it should be done, and that we do as conservatives have spending power. You know, that's that's a very good point. It, it, yeah, absolutely. They made a they made a big statement. I think there's a couple things going on as you guys are talking in my mind. Um, one is just kind of this, I don't know if it's just evangelicals, but maybe um, this Christian bubble thing where we've been living in the, you know, creating all this Christian art and Christian music and all this kind of stuff. And it's very hard to get our minds out of that. It's one of the reasons why, Brian, I wanted to talk about the stuff at the beginning that we talked about, because I figured we might end up getting here sooner or later. But also there's just this... Uh, there's this, there's this Romans 13 thing that I've been seeing with a lot of Christians that kind of use this submit to your government passage, which is certainly a biblical text and has its own context and whatever, but they, it's almost like they've been using it um, universally, like this is the only thing that the Bible has to say on the topic. And going back to the rich, young, uh, the rich man and Lazarus just for a minute, just because it's on my mind, because what I'm dealing with this week, if I'm right, um, Jesus is doing a very similar thing to what you're doing um, in writing this book, and it's and it's invading the culture um, with political subversion. Um, and I think we just need we're seeing more of that. We need more of it, but we also need to we need to have places like this where we can talk about why we need to do that, how you should do that, um, kind of more of the explanations behind it. To get people thinking about it yeah yeah like i say it's been my life's goal um you you roll with the changes um you know i remember when i first started out i wanted to just be a christian i, I want to be a hollywood screenwriter who happened to have christian worldview in his stories i want to do hollywood movies with the christian worldview yeah you know my my example had always been chariots of fire or something like that or braveheart yeah. you know um but uh, but yeah, but the world has changed dramatically. And, and those of us who are, who are as the commanding heights of the economy of the culture have been, have been captured by leftism and particularly this, this virulent strain of leftism, you know, that we call wokeism. Well, it's become very hostile and very destructive against us. So it's no longer a, a, a marketplace of ideas they're actually hunting us down to try to yeah. destroy us and not allow us to have a voice. And Hollywood is a perfect example of that. They became very extreme within the last few years. And there's many of us who have sort of left, left the business and are starting these uh, uh, yeah. parallel economies. But this yep. is a good thing because yep. um, 
it, it is, it, it can be a good thing. You know, you just, you, like I said, you just roll with the changes. Okay. Well, if I can't get a movie made in Hollywood, I'm going to make it outside the system and that's okay. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's different ways to skin a cat, you know, uh, which maybe cat lovers would not like to hear. Instead of the Christian bubble thing, it's, a, it's like, I saw, I don't, whatever you make of this um, with what happened with um, Bud Light, you know, and just how much money they've lost in the last few months because how woke they went. Some dude come out with a beer. It's called something like the unwoke beer or the non-woke beer or something. And he's getting in all these stores and, you know, it, it's like out of necessity, we're being forced into these marketplaces. And I agree with you. I think it can be a very good thing. It's not ideal, but it's, it's the, it's really, it's the creative mind at, at play at work. It's like when you have the passion, you will find a way you'll, okay, they won't let me do it this way. I'll do it. The, I'll do it another way, you know? Right. So back to the Christian ghetto though, that the Christian ghetto has been something I've dealt with all my life in terms of not wanting to be a part of. It's this sort of like Christians uh, who, who want to do creative things, but they're so, uh, they don't understand the creativity uh, biblically enough, they think creativity is only a means to an end of telling a sermon. And so they mm. try to embody sermons into their paintings or their stories or movies or whatever, Christian songs, right? And, um, and it's created a lot of bad, bad art, you know? And I think that it's gotten better over the years. Christian movies have gotten a little bit better, but there's still a lot of bad stuff out there. I always wanted to avoid it, but now I'll do it if, if, it, if, it, if it can be a good story and I can tell a good story, I'll, I'll do it because I'm not against it. It's just that it had often been so poorly done. But now, like I said, we're pushed into this corner where it may be the only place you can get work if you're a Christian, you know? And that's okay. I'll, I'll live with that. I'll do what I got to do. In other words, we don't see ourselves as victims. Yeah. But back to the Christian ghetto thing. So this is another component of cruel logic. I have a character, Danny Rains, who is a, a Christian coming to the college for freshman year. And he's brought up in the typical evangelical subculture where you've got the, all the Christian mu music and movies and Christian high school and Christian this and Christian that. And he hasn't really been equipped with a strong biblical understanding, theology, if you will. Um, uh, it's very cultural. It's very cultural Christianity. So he sings a lot of praise songs, but he doesn't really have depth. And because of that Christian ghetto context, he becomes easy prey because he doesn't have he doesn't have the weapons or the strength to be able to really counter the attacks of the enemy of the anti-Christ culture that the that the um, university is coming at him with, and this is another sort of motivation for me writing the story was this new phenomenon. It's not really new, but the the new word is called Christian deconstruction. Yes, or oh. Christian deconversion, right? I was just I've about to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, I just hear a lot of these Christian celebrities, you know, they're going on podcasts and talking about their deconversion and yep. you know, whatever. And it's happening a lot in colleges as well. Of yeah. course it's nothing new because you know, it's been since the dawn of of, of universities, Christians have been going to school, yep. universities and losing their faith because they're ill-equipped. But this new reiteration of it, it just is like, yeah, it's, I've been noticing it. And I thought, you know what? I want to, I want to, I want to tell a story about that in this context and try to capture what I think might be the reason why Christians are easy prey 
And in so doing, in showing those consequences of certain ideas of the way you're living your Christian life, hopefully you can see um, a sort of the impossibility of the contrary. In other words, hopefully you'll see um, the way to, to counter that or to at least begin to equip yourself so that you can counter it better. And uh, yeah, but again, you can't, you can't do everything in just a story or just a novel. You sometimes all you can do is hint at or point in one in a, in a direction. It's not like I'm going to give all the answers because a lot of times art is for asking questions and challenging people to think deeper than they have, but you don't always have all yeah. the time or space to give answers. Or if you do, it can be very propaganda or very preachy. So you have to embody your truth in <laughs> such a way that it's there and it can be understood, but sometimes only for him who has ears to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. The end of this book, uh, I think with both your main storylines makes you do that. It, I mean, uh, it leaves you like, what? <laughs> that's all we'll tell people. I love it. Yep. That's all I'll tell you. Well, and you know, yeah, I, we, I, I, no, no, go I, ahead. Good. I wanted to be hard hitting and I wanted it to have impact. Um, but I also want truth to be there. And uh, if you are thinking and understanding you will you'll pick it up but it's not it's not an easy answer ending and it's not a christian christian novel ending yeah yeah but you I know what i think i think that's i think that's important though that's that's very very important we spent two years three years doug working on on angels and giants yeah and at the end of the day when we were when i was asked what do you want to see come out of this was it was my, my thinking was the exact same thing. I want people to think. I want people to study. I want people to read because I believe the revelation of the Holy Spirit comes at those times. And, and, and it has to start with that curiosity. It has to start with that bug being planted in somebody's mind that says, I, I never thought about that, you know? So, uh, yeah. so yeah, that, that's absolutely spot on. Got two more questions for you, Brian. They're related to each other. The first one is, because it goes back to your short, cruel logic, film you you did not sound happy with it and you didn't really explain why so my question is if you could do that short film over again what would you do different i did not sound happy with it yeah you could yeah you sounded like you didn't like it maybe no. i misinterpreted you i you may have because i i do i'm i'm proud of that i actually okay, loved good, it good. Yeah, no, no, I, I really did. What I was unhappy with is the fact that I couldn't ever get the movie made. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> but uh, but I tell you what, now now it's like I love. I think Cruel Logic should be a series, actually, a streaming series. Now mm. I don't think it would be. I couldn't make it as a movie. There's too much to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my second question is more specific, uh, and it deals with the stuff that you've been writing before. So you said that um, it's kind of strange to completely shift. Um, the direction that you've been going and you've been doing the supernatural stuff now for 10 or more years, but you know, you were in that cruel logic world before that. So my question is, and I couldn't really tell uh, what reading the book, I couldn't really tell what your answer might be to this, but um, given that you have this whole supernatural worldview in your head and you brought up chaos earlier, um, and it, remind, it reminds me of Leviathan and the stuff we talk about on Iron and Myth. Um, do you think that you would have written this book differently before you came to the Sons of God Nephilim worldview um, than you ended up writing it? 
No, I, no, because I literally did write it a decade before I even came to uh, the Heiserian understanding. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And in fact, you know, th that's another thing too. It's like, um, there are different genres and you right. could do, I could do a thriller that has a supernatural element to it. I, I wouldn't be against that. I just, it, it just, I wanted to try something different in, in this sense, you know? So, uh, so I actually might have a, if, if the novel does well, I have some ideas for a, a, a continue, a series, not continuation, um, standalone novels, but also theological thrillers that wrestle with this notion of, um, ideas have consequences and the existence of God and serial killers. <laughs> I figured that's the best way to get people into theology and philosophy, C combine it with serial killers. Then that's what I'll do. I love it. I, I raised that question just to let people know that this really is a different genre. It's a different, yeah. totally different thing that you're doing. And I'm really thankful that you're doing it. I'm glad that you uh, took the time to be with us on the show today. Absolutely. And you're, you're awesome, man. Um, I've Thanks. loved I our friendship for so long. So, a a Amen. Absolutely. I will be continuing those series, by the way. Um, I've still got two specific ones that I know I want to write two novels in the Chronicles of the Watchers that will sort of complete the whole package better than I ever had before. So, uh, you know, now I've got to do two different, uh, series at the same time. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it do, off. Do you, how many serious question, how many hours a day do you work? Well, you know, I mean, I'm always working and this is my full-time job. The problem is, is that, and you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because even though I kind of work all day and night, right. I kind of don't because I watch movies at night. That's my work because it's my, it's, right. I'm adjusting fiction for my storytelling. Also all throughout the day, I do lots of errands. I work on things in the house. So, so the fact that I might be working till nine o'clock or something doesn't mean I'm truly working all that time, you know? So, uh, but then at the same time, I've got so much because I am a uh, individual sole proprietor of my publishing business, right? I have to do everything. I'm a yeah. self-published author. I have to do everything. That means marketing. And so I've spent all, you know, 40% of my time on marketing that I don't want to, but I have to, that's yeah. how I sell my books, you know? And so, um, there's always so much to do when you've got your own business and, and particularly when you're a self-published author, author, it gets depressing at times because I really wish I could write six, seven, eight hours a day, but there's no way I ever can because there's just too much other stuff I got to do, including real life, you know, and I have a wife and, and, um, who I'm loved dearly and involved in my church. And so it's, uh, it's a balance for sure. Um, but when I'm working on a particular project, a particular novel, you know, I'll, I can spend, sometimes I'll spend, I'll get a good day and I'll get eight hours of writing, and, but that's a really good day. Yeah. Normally it's with all the things I got to do, breaking up and everything I get, I'm lucky if I get four hours, you know, four and then pushing to six, but then my goal would be eight to 10 if I could. Yeah. But, and sometimes I'll push it if I'm really on a roll and I got to keep writing, you know, I can, I can get a few days in like that, but realistically it's about four hours or so a day writing. But that, but there also isn't, I, I'm also researching while I'm writing. Like I'll stop and go, Oh, I got to research that before I write more, you know, then there's marketing, then there's life interruptions. So it's just a, it's a mixed bag of, of time. But um, yeah, I mean, it's full-time job though, for sure. And I probably work more than most people I know, 
you know, with their day jobs and stuff. So, but I love a, it and it's my calling. Do you have a hard time or, 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 uh, or how hard, which I would say, is, is changing your mindset, making that transition from the mundane, the day-to-day, -day, even the marketing, to making that transition to the creative? Yes. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's one of my biggest problems is I actually, uh, psychologically, I need a chunk of time to write which is why I, I need at least six hours. I, uh, six hours is a good, okay, that's a good chunk of time because there's a lot of psychological uh, buildup that you have to get back into your mind and get back in the right. swing of things. And it takes a couple hours, maybe an hour or so before you really, really get back in. And then if you're interrupted, and even if it's just one little thing, oh, just, just go to the store and get this and come back. It's like, yeah, but then you start all over again. And psychological, psychologically, it's, it's more devastating than you would think well, it only took you 10 minutes to go do this. Why, what's the big deal? No, no. Uh, it's like, I've got to just be writing for, because it, there's, as I'm writing, all that I'm writing is building up in my brain. All that I prepped to, to write is building up in my brain. And then I'm, I'm planning everything that I'm getting to and I'm building it all and it's all filling up my brain. It's got to be there for me as, to, as I write. So if I have to start all over, it just goes whoop, down to zero and I got to yep. build it back up again. <laughs> so that's why for me, it's only a good day if I've got, if I got six hours in, it's like, okay, that was a good day. Four hours, uh, not so much. Do you, you, know? you shield yourself? Do you, do you get extreme about shutting out the world and, 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 uh, are you able to? Because I know, I know sometimes, especially like, you know, well, like Doug, you know, you got, you've got kids, you know? Um, yeah. So, right. so sometimes I don't have kids. Things. Yeah. So, so how, how, how much do you shield yourself when it comes time to write? A, a little bit, you know, but I mean, and then there are times where if, if I'm, if I'm on a, a stretch finishing something up, yeah, I, I will, yeah. I can do things like not answer the phone, not answer email. Like I'll turn all off my email. So I'm not alerted so I can keep writing and, and um, I'll do that occasionally. But yeah. in general, I don't. Um, uh, oh, here's the interesting thing. I did, I did discover this though. There is a component of, of creative writing that despite what I just said, there are still enough moments where it's like, I, I'm so whatever, overwhelmed in what I'm writing that when I, I can get to a stopping point and think, I just got to take a break and get away from it and not be thinking about it because I need to come back at it fresh. So that's where you go, you check your email, you get, and all, and then you get caught up and you, before you know it, you've done stuff on, online for an hour. Uh, but, but I still need, sometimes I actually do need to like pop, pop my mind away in order to come back and see it fresh. So there's that, it's just, there's no real pattern. It's just, it's all fluid in terms of the needs and, yeah. and, and what you do yeah. for yeah. me at least. Yeah. But the I beauty like your, of being your own boss. <laughs> we had, yeah. you know, you gave us your early version of the book and I liked your little notes in the back that said like, see chapter 34. <laughs> I'm assuming those will be gone by the time that most people read it, right? Yeah. Oh, I did give you an early one. Hmm. I wonder which version you were reading. Insights into what your little mind does as, as you're thinking about a certain thing. I thought it was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I did make some pretty significant changes near the end. I just don't remember which version I gave you. So be interesting. Yeah. Well, we hope that, uh, you know, this podcast and others that you're doing will be able to help you with the marketing side of this, Brian, because it is it is a lot of work. Where can people go to find your, your all your work? And, and when will the novel be out? And, and 
and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'll send you a link that you can give everyone um, where you can just get, you can go to get the book, Crew Logic at Amazon, exclusively at Amazon. It's going to be paperback, Kindle, and audiobook, and hardback as well, all, all available. If you want to know more about me, Godawa.com is my website, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. Although the truth is, and there's a lot of cool stuff on the website. I made, I wanted to make it a really help, interesting website. But the truth is, is if you go to Amazon, look up my name as an author, there's a lot of information you can find on Amazon related directly to the novels and such. Everything's explained. So, uh, yeah, that's where you go to purchase. And um, Godawa.com is where you go to just find out other information on me. Brian, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, short notice, kind of, but uh, so glad that you did it. And we're hopeful that, you know, this is going to be something that will help you out. And, um, you know, this is just such a great book and it's so important just the topic, the subject matter, and the fact that it's a novel, doing the things that we talked about that most people just put into a theology textbook, I, it, that right there is worth it, and people need to be reading this, this book. I hope that they'll go out and get it. Thanks a lot, guys, for having me. I really appreciate it, Doug. It's an honor, Doug, actually, so thank you for having me. This guy's a machine in how much stuff he writes. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Absolutely. You know, so, so if you guys have liked this podcast, you know, uh, wherever you're at, give it a like, um, subscribe, do it all the things that you need to do. Push the buttons, do everything. Let, let the like button know that, you, that you're there. And remember that it's the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. That's been giant steps. My name is Charles Cullen. They call me the philosopher killer. Some call me insane. But Aristotle said that no genius has ever existed without a touch of madness. Some say I'm evil. But I say I make my victims face the consequences of their own ideas. What about you? Could you defend your beliefs if your life depended on it? Cruel Logic, the Philosopher Killer. A brilliant theological thriller novel by Brian James Gadawa. Readers are saying the most thrilling novel you will read this year. A page-turner with shocking twists. Get it now at Amazon.com in Kindle paperback and audiobook.